Welcome to another Trench Chats, and I'm really pleased this week to welcome Samantha Cowan from Canada. Hi, Sam. Hi, Val. How are you? I'm fine, fine. Thanks for coming. Um, now, I know you've got a, a healthy interest and indeed knowledge of the military history of, of both world wars, but you're not an historian as such. You're, you work, you're a tourism professional. You work in battlefield tours. That's right. Yeah, I'm an operator. So I'm more uh, dealing with hotel contracts and guides and working with so many different local communities around the world that have some sort of connection to the Canadian battlefield story. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things, you know, we tend to think the Great War was just 1914-18, but we've had a, a century since the Great War and a century of people visiting battlefields. And, and battlefield tourism, which both you and I work in, is a really interesting and important subject. Mm, mm, very much so, absolutely. And for you, I mean, you studied tourism at university. Mm -hmm. Yep, mm -hmm. yep. And I went into it not thinking that I would kind of follow in my dad's footsteps or follow, you know, work in battlefields per se. I think it's just one of those things you just get so addicted to, you know, the once you learn something, you kind of just, from there, it just explodes into a real passionate interest, but I didn't go into the program thinking that I would be studying battlefields or battlefield tourism. I just kind of looked at as tourism as a whole, but within that program um, at the university, we really did delve into the subject of remembrance tourism and battlefield tourism. So it kind of naturally progressed from there for sure. I'm sure some people listening to this will probably think it's a bit of an odd thing to think that there is something called battlefield tourism and, mm. and that remembrance tourism exists, but we've got to classify it somehow, haven't we? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because it is becoming more of a more of a subject to talk about. And and you work for the company that I think your dad started. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been working. I've been working with him for since 2013. Um, but he's been working on these tours since 1980s, so long time. I think he started with Insight. I might be wrong about that, but that's a, he, he kind of was contracted out and then uh, started a company here in Canada in 1986. And in that time, you know, have, you, have you both seen interest in Canada and battlefield tourism coming from Canada grow? Oh, absolutely. And I think even when I started, there is so many, I mean, there's so many other programs that we do at the company because the company is a wholesaler. We, we don't, we're, we organize so many different types of programs, um, not just battlefields, but battlefields was something that would come up every single year. And even when I started, people were asking, well, when is that kind of going to die out? Like, when are people going to stop uh, looking at battlefields, but I, I, since I've started, we've seen this huge boom. I, I don't think it's something that's going to go away. I think it's so important to our human history and more and more people are learning and people are asking more questions. So yeah, huge increases since even since I started working in this job, huge incre increases. I think before it used to be only like a 15% of our of our business was battlefield or or remembrance tourism and now it's it's more than more than half i would say probably 75 percent of the programs that we run are specifically battlefield related and and the canadians that, that come across with you are, are they driven to come by a personal connection to it through family or is it a general desire to to know about canadian history or a bit of both maybe 
Yeah, for sure. A, a bit of both. I think what surprises me the most is how many people come over because they had just a general interest and then say halfway through a program that they realize now that they have a relative that has a you know direct connection to this. I think it's, it's something that uh, I mean, nowadays it's a little better. I think a lot of more people are coming out and saying, you know, we have a, a relative, but we don't know where they fought or what regiment they were in or, or what have you. But I see it all the time on, on so many tours where we kind of have to prepare travel agents ahead of time, you know, to let them know there are certain ways that you can find out if you do have a family relation and it's so great to find that out before the tour goes. But I mean, inevitably it happens all the time. And I'm sure you've had this as well, where someone is on tour and they realize or, or they decide to speak up about some sort of relation that they have. So yeah. yeah I mean, some, sometimes you get somebody that is just wandering around a cemetery and they've got an unusual name and they suddenly see that name hmm. uh, on a headstone and, They've got no idea that they had a connection to this. For sure. Absolutely. And you know what? I mean, I'm I'm in that group too. I mean, I remember when my dad took me up to the Menin Gate and took me around the side and he showed me all these Cowans on the memorial. And I was like, wow, are any of them related to us? And he was like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, so it's it is interesting that people kind of have that realization. I mean, there's so many different reasons why people would want to go on these battlefield tours. And, and we operate so many programs like, you know, that are directly for the military or directly for tank engineers. So there are these specific niches as to why people go on these tours but the family relation is that's it that's interesting because sometimes it just kind of pops up like that you know and I guess that makes the trips quite personal for these people and personal for for the whole group because they're all connected by this story and their relatives oh, were connected so by it yeah for sure and I think it, that's important to uh try to figure out ahead of ahead of time or you know when you're on tour with these people have the guide write down these stories that so that you can continue learning before and after the tour as well I think that strengthens not just the bonds between family members but as you said like people on tour because then all of a sudden someone else on tour can say oh wow not only did this battle really happen but this woman that I'm sitting behind you know her great uncle was in that you know I think that's it's just a great way of, of bringing us all together, that un fundamental understanding we need, you know? And, and those individual stories help bring the bigger picture alive, I think, as well, don't they? Exactly, exactly. And it's the same, it's the same for me. I think, you know, I studied, specifically, I studied the First World War because, um, you know, I found that very interesting. And I always worked with Second World War veterans. So for me, I needed that understanding of, of the First World War. And then so you read these stories of the First World War, you learn about it. And then to meet someone like I got to meet a granddaughter of the great granddaughter of a man in the Monchi 10. So the Monchi Le Pre, the 10 Newfoundlanders. Um, of the Royal Regiment. And, and I remember meeting her and just being like, you know, I kind of fangirled over this girl, just because for me, that gave me a real link to these guys, you know, for me, it made it true, you know? Yeah, it's, it's not just a list of names in a regimental history, is it? It's, it's someone real, someone standing in front of you. 
Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it kind of is scary, isn't it? Cause it's like a hundred years ago was a hundred years ago. Um, but then you have this real walking, talking, breathing human in front of you that has this, you know, and it all of a sudden these events don't seem that far away. You know, it all seems very much connected. Yeah. I think that's one of the amazing things about studying the past and, and doing what we do is you realize how, much a hundred years is just a blink of an eye mm. no absolutely yeah absolutely it's scary to think it's only you know a few generations between us and and those events and and i know you you were over quite a lot during the the first world war centenary you, you'd have seen you know as, as we did this huge growth of interest during that period making the battlefields quite crowded mm, yeah Absolutely. It was very crowded. <laughs> and I was going to say that that brought with it quite a few problems with big events, didn't it? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I've talked about events a lot and ceremonies a lot and just kind of the sensitivities around it. And, you know, the geo blocking technology that the CWGC had to come out with, you know, to make sure that these areas are don't get degraded, you know, there's no degradation or anything like that. But um, it's, it's centenary was, a, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because there's so many interesting things about the centenary and so much good that came out of those events. Um, but it still was quite tricky to navigate the crowds, um, even, you know, hotel contracts and, and uh, coach regulations and, and trying to navigate all this within the sentence. That was tricky, very, very tricky. But again, I mean, we had so many new museums open up the the ring of remembrance that huge, important memorial, I think was so needed in the landscape and, and the centenary just boosted that. So yeah, it was, it was a double-edged sword for sure. Um, I look back at the centenary now and I think nothing but um, positive, you know, just, it was very memorable, very, very memorable, such a one. And to, to be in this, to be an Eper on November 11th, 2018, with just the world around you and all these different nationalities coming together that had the same story. Wow. What a, that was, that was phenomenal. I think, you know, Ypres probably must've had a hard time navigating with those huge crowds, but that was by far one of my favorite moments in, in my life to, to be there for that. Yeah, and I know I know some people were were critical about big events like that, but but for me, I you know my feeling is history belongs to us all, so mm. we can't but expect lots of people want to be there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and it should be encouraged. I think I think it should be encouraged. Um, there are so many different types of tourism that I look that I frown upon, um, but if there's anything that I would wish to be uh, I, any type of tourism that I wish people did at least once in their life, it, it would be this specific subject. Um, it doesn't have to be focused on the First World War, um, but just our collective battlefield history is so important, you know? And, and during that centenary period in, in Canada, do you think it, it pushed the First World War and Canada's involvement in it up the page a bit? I hope so. Um, I still think we 
struggle. I, and I, I would love to know if it's the same for you, but um, we kind of struggle with the second world war being kind of a blinder in front. So I still think despite the Canadians losing more of our military in the first world war, I still think the focus is very much on the second. And sometimes I struggle with, especially when it's customized programs where, you know, the family has a specific wish list of what they want to do in a certain number of days. And, you know, I think it's important that they see the first world war, but they might just really want to see the Normandy beaches or, or just focus on the second world war story. So I still find that for, for us, there is a kind of a struggle to bring them back to the first world war story. Cause they're so integral to each other. I firmly believe that you can't understand what happened in the second, if you don't explore the first, you know? And, and, and do you think it's, it's interesting you say that because when I, when I lived at Corsolette, we didn't get quite so many Canadian servicemen then coming from from Germany as they probably did during the height of the Cold War when there was a lot of Canadians in in West Germany. But a lot of them said there was a bit of a disconnect with the First World War because so many of the original Canadians have been born in Britain and when they've been killed, their connection with Canada, direct connection, had been lost. They died in Canadian uniform, but they had no family in Canada, no wife, no children. So modern Canadians, like you say, like when they look back, they, they look more at World War Two. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting point. It's and uh, you're right. That's that's a direct uh, Canadians coming over from Britain in for that specific generation. Yeah, perhaps that's a reason as to why we haven't looked at it with um, as much reverence as we have the Second World War for sure. And I still think there's a narrative there in Canada, our our relations to Britain and and how kind of our perspective has changed on that too. So that that's interesting for sure. Yeah, but when it comes to Corselet, I think that. A lot of um, Canadians, Canadian tours can drive by that site very quickly without stopping. And really, I mean, I think that's not just a, a Canadian story. That's you can't fully understand the Battle of the Somme 1916 without understanding Corselet and what happened there. So, um, yeah, I think, yeah, it's interesting that not only are Canadians kind of focused more on the Second World War story, but Corselet tends to be a drive by. Yeah, and I think I think if it was a British story, it probably would be the same because the, the slight confusion, of course, is the is the uh, is Newfoundland becoming part of Canada after the Second World War, and the Newfoundland Park at Beaumont Hamel, which you know, no idea how many people visit that location, particularly during the centenary, it's going to be huge numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was a toss-up between some open fields around Corselet and and you know a whole park full of trenches and shell holes, people are logically going to go there. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, and and that's kind of a tricky, it's tricky for uh, us. And I think any guides who are working with Canadians is that it's so important to separate the two, to separate Beaumont Hamel from Corselet because we were different. The Newfoundlanders were their own country and, and the Newfoundlanders still have a great deal of pride. I mean, July 1st, is Canada Day in Canada, but for the Newfoundlanders, it's still Memorial Day because of what happened at the Somme. So it, there's a sensitivity there when it comes to handling the Newfoundland story and handling Beaumont Hamill versus 
corselet, you know, it's a different narrative uh, and that's very important between Canada and Newfoundland. And I guess that's important, why it's important for there to be a battlefield guide with a group to, to bring that story and to highlight that story and the differences between these stories that connect it all up. Mm-hmm, yeah, for sure. I, 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 I think without a doubt, anyone should go with a, with a guide. They can be local, um, you know, they can be, but as long as you have that narrative and that background, I, I don't even think text, if you read it in, in text, it'll, it'll give you that, that right source. And Beaumont Hamill is a great site because there's Canadians there already from veteran affairs students that are there to kind of explain that a little bit. But um, th- I think having a guide there enhances that. Um, and it, it's so needed at Corselet, especially. And when you when you bring Canadian groups over, are there particular areas that they want to visit? Now, I'm going to mention the V word now, which is is Vimy, um, because in, in some respects, going back to what we've just been saying, Vimy is almost like a byword for the Great War in Canada. Mm-hmm, very much. It's on our $20 bill. Vimy, I think it's a it should be a. Um, something that every Canadian can hold in their minds. Absolutely. Um, there's, I, Vimy is a site that every, everyone should see. I think I, I'm a huge fan, fan of Walter Allward, the, the sculptor of, of Vimy. I think I've always been a huge fan of his. Um, I've had heard stories from other Canadians about him. So they're not to ever, ever take away from Vimy, but yeah, I think for us, when Canadians say, oh, I just want to go to Vimy and nowhere else. And there's a lot of Canadians who will like go to Paris and then ask about doing a day trip just to Vimy and nothing else. So um, we struggle with Vimy because it's, it's something that should be in every Canadian's minds. Absolutely. But you know, you're so close to Beaumont Hamill. And then there's the whole argument of the Hill 70 Memorial, which um, finally went up into 2017 as well. And um, that was a privately funded project in Canada and Vimy was public, publicly funded. Um, So the differences between those two sites, how from a historical narrative, Hill 70 should be a more in, more in our for in for Canadians, it should be more in our forefront of our minds to understand Hill 70. But um, you can't argue that Vimy, the memorial is beautiful and, and you can understand so much more about the landscape while standing there. So, yeah, Vimy is always going to be a site that every Canadian should go to. Absolutely. But I think we are still going to struggle with pulling Canadians to other places. And I still, I still work with operators and travel agents who say that you can do Vimy in a day and then go up to Ypres. Whereas I think in my lifetime, that's changed. I think in my lifetime, you need to spend more time at Vimy because the interpretation center is bigger. Um, and they're extending tunnels down there that we can explore next year. Um, but also you have Hill 70, I think Notre Dame de Lorette, I think every Canadian who goes to Vimy needs to see Notre Dame de Lorette as well, because that's a part of the Battle of Arras. That's a part of that whole story. And again, the features of those two landscapes are so, so similar. Not only would you understand the First World War from just seeing those two sites, but you could also understand, you know, just the, the methodology behind 
the static warfare, you know, just by seeing those two sites. So we Canadians, we have a lot of work to do when it comes to explaining, educating Canadians on Vimy and the other sites in the area and how they're connected to each other. Um, but all those little museums and all those passionate communities in those areas that you should be meet, meeting and engaging with as well. You know, it's not just, it shouldn't be just like, oh, I saw Vimy, here's a stamp on my, on my card saying that I've done this in my life, check. You know, there's so much, there's so much more to see. But, but I guess, you know, as, you, as you've explained it, it's a way everyone's going to want to see Vimy and let's work with that and let's use it as a way to explain the bigger picture. Exactly. Absolutely. And it would a great benefit, you know, to say like, we've got this wonderful site that we can, we can use as a draw to bring people in. But once you're there, you know, there's so much more uh, to learn and to know just, just from Vimy alone, for sure. Yeah, I, I can't help but get excited anytime I do hear Vimy come up in, in conversation and, you know, on an international stage, I, I always kind of, I, I'm proud of it. Absolutely. Well, who, who wouldn't be proud of such a magnificent memorial? I was going to ask you, you know, when, when Canadians that you, you take out there, when, when they visit Vimy, what do they say? How do they feel? I, it's the same time. It's the same reaction every time, you know, and I, even me and how many people I've worked with who have been to Vimy a million times in their life. I mean, before COVID, I was there, oh my goodness, like every month, all the time. Um, I think you can't help yourself, but I take a picture. I can't help, but take it. I have the same picture on my phone for years and years and years. It's just such a, it doesn't matter how many times you're there. You, 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 and it doesn't matter what the weather is like either. You know, if it's sunny or if it's rainy, it's just a, it's a, it's a thing that you can't not gasp at because it is so beautiful. Um, and it's such an important story. Uh, but yeah, you got to prepare Canadians for that too, I think, because, um, I, you know, we see it on our, on our $20 bill and we see it in Canadian stamps. And we, so we have this image of it, but it's not like seeing the Statue of Liberty where you're like, oh, it's really, it's much smaller than I imagined. No, Vimy is huge, you know? So to kind of mentally prepare people that it is going to be just as, incredible a sight as as you made up in your mind and it, it can be so emotional for people um it can be a really emotional sight and uh i'm i can't go there by myself i've done it once before and when you're there alone it's it's a very overwhelming feeling so yeah preparing you've got to mentally prepare people and know that you know you're going to be taking a million pictures and you're going to have a million pictures of the same thing <laughs> yeah well I'm guilty of that too I mean uh, you know wherever I go I'm always snapping away with, uh, with the iPhone and passengers say you must have photographed that a thousand times you think exactly. well, I have <laughs> but yeah, not going to harm to do it again yeah, no harm. Yeah, this is it as it goes through the ages, you know? <laughs> but I think in the modern world, you know, sort of expressing things through taking images like that, you know, I think there's there's an interesting way to, to, to view places through the lens of something, through the lens of an actual camera or, or your phone screen or whatever. And perhaps it, it gives you a slightly different definition. I mean, you can become obsessed with it, sure. But, but I think um, the way you frame something up 
you're you're reacting to it and I, I guess that's what sculptors like Allwood wanted you to do mm-hmm, absolutely it's your reaction to it yeah and I, I I was actually just talking to a traveler the other day this wonderful woman that I've worked with for years and years and I I love her pictures and I actually have saved I I always ask her to send me pictures because she just has this she has this great talent of capturing the love or, or this different perspective. So it's nice to see all those different perspectives of a site because you can see that through someone's eyes, you know, through their own perspective. And, and with the centenary, you know, we, we both saw lots of sites like Tyne Cart and, and Passchendaele and Sanctuary Ward and, and all these other locations have staggering number of visitors. And, and that went sort of up and up and down a bit, but Beyond the centenary, certainly in Britain, we see interest continuing to grow. Is, is that the same in Canada? Yeah, I don't think that interest will go away. I think, especially when we look at younger generations, we see not just an interest, but a knowledge that certainly my generation didn't have at the same age. So even you know, there's, I, I don't think that's going to go away. I, I, I know that numbers will dip and rise, dip and rise. And that's directly correlated to our economy. You know, we saw that in 2008, we'll see that again in COVID. Um, but the general interest is there. And I know that because over COVID, I've been working at a high school uh, in my local area and, you know, speaking with these students and, and the, the high school that I'm working at is, um, for teenagers that are coming to return to, to class. So I'm not working with students that are excelling uh, in academics, but when I talk about what my work is, you know, the interest, the level of interest and the level of knowledge is, is unbelievable. And I have students that are telling me, you know, they're really interested in the Eastern front. Whoa. You know, these kids haven't even, the kids who are working with today weren't even alive during nine 11. And yet they have such a strong understanding of, and, you know, thank you to video games and thank you to, to media. Um, Absolutely. But I, I think that there's going to be that this interest will grow and grow. Hopefully, hopefully that I think we, I think there's a fight for that. And I think we should continue fighting for that because I think that it's such a beneficial form of tourism. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because I think, you know, with the growth in remembrance tourism, there is a connection, you know, as we've discussed between people that want to see relatives who were there, but there will be many people from many different communities that might not have that direct connection, but yet the First World War continues to inspire and interest them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, yeah, look at the all the amazing people involved in the communities and in the learning side. I, I think it's easy to motivate. And it's also just one of those things, like once you've seen it a little bit, you can't help. But but kind of get addicted to to the learning and the knowledge because it's so powerful to our understanding of the world we live in today, especially the First World War, my goodness, you know? And, and in Canada, you've got, you know, so many resources to, to help bring that sort of picture of the First World War alive, whether it's photographs, the incredible collection of images that you've got in the Canadian archives, the war diaries, or, or even the war art, which for Canada, there's some staggering paintings from that period oh isn't there just oh my goodness absolutely I was I spoke to our Canadian war artist um Roger Chabot 
a couple months ago. And um, to see that that, you know, with the military today, that that trend continues. Uh, war art, I think, is is really important to uh, our understanding of of the conflicts. But you know, you go into Ottawa's Parliament today, and some of the most famous, beautiful images in in the judicial courts, in the Supreme Court. I mean, you know, it's that it's everywhere. It's so it's beautiful too, isn't it? Gorgeous yeah, and, and some real defining images. I mean, there's that absolutely massive one of the Canadians at the Second Battle of Ypres where they've got their Colt machine gun and the line of guys in the trenches and the Germans are coming at them through the, through the gas attack. I mean, you know, you look at that and you think, sure, it's just incredible. Yeah, it really is. I mean, the poetry too, you know, that came out of that period is just, oh, it's, yeah, it's touching. And, and I think with, with the Canadians, they, you know, it was a nation that was, it was changing even at that time from, from being a place that people just came to to seek fame and fortune but they realized it was a place that they loved and they were prepared to go to war for it and in many cases lay down their lives and and that rich subject matter of all those different people can only but inspire future generations I'd hope. Mm, I Absolutely I hope so and you actually brought up a great point I think I was listening to your podcast and you were talking about the Vimy Memorial and I never thought of that before but you were pointing out the names on our memorial all from different places not different places in Canada but different places in the world you know Korean names Japanese names um, Indian names and so I found that I, I I think that's very touching because Canada is very much a mosaic <laughs> different different definitely different uh, people and different identities and different cultures so it's interesting to see that all uh, come to life in in a Canadian story, you know. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, it, it was the most to me the most multinational force on the Western Front as a single sort of entity. And, and I guess that you know, over a century later, that's what can help make people engage with it because there's people from everywhere in the Canadian Expeditionary Force. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think it's important that we continue reminding people of that too. And that actually came up in 2018 um, for the centenary on November 11th. The huge question a lot of operators were asking here in Canada was, do we go to the small Canadian event that's happening? I, I think it was in um, Belgium, in Mons. Um, or do we go to the international event in Ypres? Because both ceremonies were happening at the same time. And it was so funny that so many operators decided not to go to the small Canadian ceremony, but to Eper because we are international, because so many of us are representing different nationalities. And I remember, you know, one of a, a wonderful guy we work with, who's a student who's written several blogs, was really interested in the Gurkha, in, in the Gurkha um element of the First World War and what the Gurkhas went through. And he was so excited to see the Gurkhas represented in Ypres. And he identifies as Canadian, but that was so important for him was to see that the Gurkhas were there and and to see his excitement over that was just, it it was wonderful. It's so profound that we can say that we're Canadian, but we also have these different nationalities that we represent too, you know? And, and now, of course, I mean, the last year, you know, you and I would be out there all the time, but we've not been able to get there 
at all. And, and as we emerge from COVID, I suppose for us in Battlefield and Remembrance Tourism, there's quite a lot of challenges ahead. So many. Yeah, definitely a few. And uh, I mean, big ones, small ones, I mean, small ones. I think, I think the idea of like littering and uh, we were talking about, you know, leaving flags and leaving poppies, uh, water bottles and, and the use of water bottles, that kind of thing. Those are, those are definitely issues ahead, but issues that are easy for us to tackle there are definitely bigger issues that are going to be harder to tackle and it's going to need all of us together to fix or, or to work on or, or to look at because, you know, the landscape has changed a lot physically and um, in every other way. Absolutely. And uh, I've seen it change so much. I think we're all headed in a great direction though, because you know, when I started working in this job, talking with different guides, I would ask, you know, we have a online database where people can, where tour guides can put their research on to help other guides out. And I remember when I started this job, that was something that, you know, no guide, guides would see that as, you know, their protected material. Um, so I'm glad that more people are kind of opening up and willing to help each other out because, this type of tourism will become more mainstream. More people are looking at this. And I think that a lot of travelers would be disappointed if they see areas that are very overcrowded or, um, or we're dealing with uh, ethically sensitive issues, ethically sensitive narratives in the wrong way. Um, there's too much technology. There's too much knowledge out there um, or too much misunderstanding misinformation, I should say. So I think that's one of the big challenges we have up ahead is, is tackling misinformation. And, and I think a key way we can work in fighting that is learning together, sharing information um, and, and peer review. I think peer review is absolutely necessary and discussing this is necessary. Absolutely, definitely, and and I think you know working together is something that's come come out of this this period really. And you know, you and I have spoken about a few things to do with uh, challenges on the battlefields before, and I, I think that's a really good thing. If it, if it's been a time in which people that work in this industry and we've operated to a degree in isolation, if it's given us this opportunity to to stop and pause and talk to each other, that can only be a good thing. Mm-hmm, absolutely, yeah, and I think. You know, we're all missing that social side of it. I think it was, it's so important, you know, that the community continues and we have these debates and we have these conversations and, you know, uh, letting everyone, letting everyone share their information, their resources. And yeah, we kind of all have to tackle this together. We're still, for despite it becoming such a mainstream type of travel, type of tourism, we're still such a small the, the industry, the infrastructure is still quite small. You know, we're, we're nowhere near the community that the cruise line industry has or, or resorts in the Caribbean. So uh, there's different policies that we can look at um, to, to just strengthen us, us more, but we're, we're still so niche. We're still so small. 
Yeah, yeah, and I, but, but I think that that's good as well because it means you know you you get to know people and uh, so just like the, the guys back in fourteen eighteen when they were out the line in somewhere like Popperinger or in a village behind the lines in Albert, they'd bump into guys that they knew in the Estaminets. You know, I think it's hopefully once we're back out there, it would be a similar thing for us. Yeah, absolutely, and so it should be for sure. I think. And that sharing knowledge, I think, is really important. I mean, one of the reasons that, that I started the podcast really was was partly about that because you become this big sort of receptacle of knowledge and information and stuff, and you know it swims around in your head, and you know you share it with people you know. But I think there's if you can share it with a wider audience, and a, and a lot of people we've seen do that, you know, over the last year or so, and I, and I think that's a really great outcome of a of a terrible hard period. Yeah. It, you're right. It is. It, it's it, it's turning lemons into lemonade in a way that we really needed. I mean, if you told even 2013 me when I was starting this job and I was so intimidated and I was I was terrified and I had worked with veterans, but you know, veterans the the relationship I had with Canadian veterans wasn't they weren't sitting down and and telling me everything I needed to know. If I told 2013 me today that I had access to the podcast that you have, that I had, um, you know, these YouTube videos that I can watch. I mean, there's just so in the last year, there is so much amazing stuff. I've learned so much in this year sitting at my computer than I have on the battlefield. I think, and that was something that I was really worried of when COVID started. Um, it wasn't the hotel contracts. It wasn't coach contracts. It was, am I going to lose touch with this community that we work so hard to be involved with? And am I going to learn, lose the knowledge that I've gained this whole time, you know? And I'm so happy to say that at least we haven't lost that. If anything, that's grown and grown, you know? Yeah. And I think if, if you have a true passion in, in this subject, it's, it forever becomes lifelong learning. You know, you never, you never stop learning and you never, you never want to stop learning. And you never want to. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, it becomes a part of your rest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He says sitting in a house entirely full of books, you know, so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, it's, it, it's, I think it's one of the great things of it. And, and, and there is so much, to, to find out on these battlefields, you know, I mean, I haven't visited every cemetery, for example, and I almost sort of don't want to, in some respects, I always want there to be one that I haven't been to, you know, so that you can just turn up. But then again, you know, every year that I go out there and I go some, I mean, I don't know how many times I've been to Tyne Cot, but you see something different every time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Tyne Cot's one of those sites where you could, right? You could walk across a, a new grave every day for a lifetime. Um, but uh, yeah, as you said, it's a lifetime of learning. And I think for anyone who is nervous about or intimidated about learning about this subject um, or is worried that it's too complex, I think that would give everyone a big sigh of relief that you can go into this subject forever and there's always going to be something that you don't know every day. You're going to learn something new, you know? Um, but I, and I think on a cognitive level, that's so important for humans to be learning every day, especially from these huge conflicts that are so recent in our human history. 
yeah and and there are there are a lot of lessons to take away from these places it's it's not just the history i think there are life lessons aren't there when you stand you know i mean you're a lot younger than me you stand in cemeteries like that and you see all these young men and in some places young women as well who laid down their lives you think you know these these people didn't have a chance to live their life and i've got a duty to do that mm-hmm. absolutely you can't not go home with a, a new perspective. And I learned that because we work with different types of groups, we don't work just with battlefields. So uh, one of the groups that we work with a lot is um, Highland dancers and, and competitive dance groups that are coming over to Europe. And organically that did come from battlefields because you know these performance groups were coming over for specific ceremonies, um, but that grew into kind of its own thing. However, I did learn, I did go on tour with a dance group in 2019 and I realized it was a a woman on the tour was upset because she couldn't get a latte and we were just, we were in the Highlands. So it was like, I'll get you to a Costa coffee as quickly as I can. But you know, the next, you know, pit lockery is probably the only place I can get you a latte. And I remember she was okay, but she started you know, she started getting really upset because she couldn't get this latte. And I remember I was so out of my element dealing with that reaction because you would never get that reaction from a traveler in the battlefields because there's this perspective there that is so needed, you know? You'd never have someone break down like that over a latte. So um, I, I think, yeah, it's so, these tours are so important. Battlefield tourism is so important because it's, you're learning so much, you're gaining this perspective. I think it's so needed. It's an experience that can change lives, really. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure it's changed yours. It's definitely changed, changed mine. Absolutely. I still remember uh, people on their very first tour at the beginning where they're like, not really into it. You know, they're here because, you know, they're pleasing someone else in their family that wants to go and then just loving it by the end and, and, you know, joining their legion when they come back to Canada and things like that. You you see it, you see people change big time. You do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, one of the nicest comments you can get is somebody that's come with a partner um, and it doesn't have to be, you know, a woman accompanying a guy it can often be the other way around. And they say, well, I was dreading this tour. You know, it's all yeah, cemetery yeah. death. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and I thought, what is this going to be about? And then they come up to you at the end and say, this has just been so fascinating. You know, I'm going to go back and I'm going to read the books and watch the videos and so on. And I think that's great because, you know, it's grabbed them in the same way that it grabbed us the first time we went there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, and isn't that great? You're right. That is such a great thing to hear from someone on tour. I, and But I can empathize truly, wholly and truly with someone who's dreading it just because it's, it can be a dark subject to talk about, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the part of the challenge of, of presenting a battlefield tour is that there's, there's a lot of bad news in it. But, but equally, um, that you can get some positives from that. You can be inspired by it and, and you can take things from it and appreciate people in the past and, and for what they did and what they sacrificed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. So important. And I think that, you know, that, that all that leads on to us working in tourism 
um, you from Canada and, and me from the UK, you know, it's our job. We get paid for it. It's how we earn a living. And for some people, that's a bit of an anathema. They, they don't like the idea of somebody profiting from this. But yeah, <laughs> but I, I see it in this way that there can be honour with profit, that what drives you is not the money, but it, it's, it's, it's spreading that knowledge and understanding of a subject. Absolutely. I don't think anyone who does what you and I do is in it for the money. Absolutely not. And if, if they do, there's got to be something wrong with you. <laughs> you know, something wrong with your soul or, or, you know, I mean, there's better ways, there's better ways to make a buck. Absolutely. I, I do get frustrated when I, I hear those comments and it, it does happen often where someone, you know, I, even from my friends, you know, what you're, that idea that we're benefiting or we're banking off uh, this awful event. Um, and tourism in and of itself is a tricky subject because is tourism inherently good or evil? And I don't think it's that easy. I think, I think if you look at the big picture, tourism is, is not just, um, good. I think it's needed. I think everyone needs to have that perspective. Everyone needs to step out of their box and see what the real world is like. And if anything, a battlefield tourism is not just connecting you to the other side of the world, but to our bigger human history. So I, beyond a finance, beyond financial gains, I think this is important. Um, this is a, this is a, a type of activity that's going to strengthen you socially, um, economically, environmentally. It's so important for, for a human being to experience that. Um, it's much better than the, all the other ways that I could be mo making money in tourism. And again, I just don't think, I think, you know, we all gotta, we all have to eat. So, that, you know, that's just how it is. Um, but I don't think anyone is taking uh, advantage at all. I, I certainly don't see that with the type of people we work with. Absolutely yeah, not. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's linked in to a degree, isn't it, I suppose, with responsible tourism is that part of what we do is, is working with people on the ground out there. And, mm -hmm. you know, a place like West Flanders will have been devastated by the last year and, and us continuing to take groups there will help them in their own economic recovery absolutely oh that's so needed i mean you know look at the talbot house and look at how expensive it is to keep the heating on there and and you know this house is over 100 years old and that comes with astronomical maintenance fees just to keep the house up so i mean you know that's just one example of a million that you and i have um, about these areas and it's a legacy it's a le it's a, not just the physical structure it's the legacy that that structure represents so we it's important that we're bringing a support to the economy back back into those areas oh so important absolutely because it's you know it, here's to the day when when we return because it won't be just us that will be happy with that it will be all those people across Flanders and Northern France and many other battlefields besides seeing those people return because without that tourism and the revenue from that tourism places that are as wonderful and amazing as Talbot House can disappear can't they? Oh could you and could you imagine I mean if that happened 
I mean, you know, they, they survived the second world war, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 isn't it, it's scary, but we're looking at the cost of lumber here in Canada and all over the world is skyrocketed. If you look at, you know, the blockage in, in the Suez Canal, there's these huge issues going on in the world that are constantly reminding us that our economy is so sensitive to change and that any little fluctuation can make a huge difference to think that these places that we could lose these places in our lifetime because of economical struggles is that's, that's tough to tough to cope with, uh, tough to, to look at, but it's, you know, that's why it's so important that we go back to these sites, that we bring people back, that we're buying, you know, local lunches on the ground and, and putting money into these independent hotels and these families that have, I mean, you talk about it all the time on your podcast, these families that have been there since they came back to these ruined villages and they literally picked up brick by brick and lived in these tiny tents you know, with just a hot stove to keep them warm. And the, I mean, you know, they struggled through so much to get where they are today. It's such a let, it's so important that we, that we keep these places going. We can continue supporting that. And I think even before COVID with the yellow jacket movement in France, this was already a big issue that we bring money into these small little places and stop these huge cities from becoming larger mega cities boy, is that important. Yeah, there's, it's, it's not all about Paris, is it? It's, uh, there's, there's so many other places besides, and we see it on the battlefields, don't we, with small museums and really tiny concerns that promote remembrance and history, and they need support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they deserve it, don't they? You know, with the passion and the knowledge that they have. And I, I think there's something to be said about the little sacrifices that these local communities have made, especially in COVID, to keep this going. There's something huge to say there because, you know, they've they're sacrificing so much. They're they're spending so much money to keep these places up for for us to come back to oh it's that's yeah I, I i think talking with all the suppliers over in in flanders and and in france especially that i think that's kind of has our heart up a little bit our heart rate kind of speeds up just making sure that these suppliers are still around and that they still have food on their table i mean it's it's crazy to, to think about, but, but every single individual in these local communities that plays a part to the story, it's so important to keep them afloat and, and cheering them on and thanking them for, for what they're doing for us this year. Yeah, it feels a bit like our sort of World War II moment, if you like. We've only had a year, not six years of the Second World War, but, you know, there's, there's been an impossibility of visiting these places and they've stopped dead in their tracks and now we return and, and part of what we do is working with people working with each other to rebuild all that and 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 it feels while that's terrible and daunting and everything else it feels positive too yeah i i mean i think w- there is that idea of this rebuilding we're gonna have to do in 2022 um but you know i'm not i'm I'm fairly excited for it. Whereas if you told me that this was going to happen six years ago, I would be overwhelmingly daunted. 
you know, but it is an exciting feeling. I think maybe because we haven't seen each other in so long and, you know, we do miss what we had without realizing what we had when we had it, you know? And, and when you get back out there, is there anywhere you're going to go to first? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. It's so hard to have a first place because I miss it all so much. I, I would love to spend, you know, a whole summer in Normandy just on my own, you know? Um, I can't wait to get back to the Psalm and uh, yeah, it's so hard to have, I can't wait to get back to Eper, you know, my goodness. Um, but I think it, the hard thing about this is, is that we've got to learn so much. So there's other battlefields that I want to see now. And that's just a selfish for selfish reasons only, but you know, there's so many other places that I would love to go. Um, Gallipoli is on the hit list next year. Finally, uh, the Newfoundlanders have, have been the catalyst there. So it'll be great to finally get over there. But there's so much more in in Holland that I want to explore, in Germany, in Poland, uh, the Atlantic Wall. I'd love to go up to Norway. You know, there's the story is so much bigger than just uh, the Western Front and Normandy. Um, that that's what I've really learned this year. And I think that goes back to what we were saying before. It's this lifelong learning and this this desire to continue to explore and understand and and find these places. And it's it's never ending. Yeah. Can I ask you the same question? Do you have a? Sure. Well, it, it's easy for me. I think it's, it's walking up that lane towards Corselet British Cemetery. Ah. It's, um, it's the point on the Western Front that I've photographed the most over the years for all sorts of reasons, but it still remains this spot, this, this almost unique spot sitting on a rise, the vast somscapes around it and uh, the trees full of birdsong. And it, it just encapsulates completely what the battlefields mean to me that's oh I love that so much and I, I love that that's your answer oh because you know it's a place again we got to get more Canadians there because again it's it's oftentimes a drive-by and it shouldn't be that's lovely so that's a that's a simple you know that's such a in my head that's that's an image you see everywhere but you've got it down to it to an exact spot that's I love that yeah, I, I certainly miss those skies on places like the Somme, that's for sure. I mean, mm. we get some amazing skies here in Yorkshire, but the, the Somme-scapes, as we call it, that's it's quite something. Mm-hmm. I do. Sometimes you have to warn people, especially if they're driving from Dieppe into the Somme, um, that the landscape is going to drastically change, drastically change. And when it does, it is quite breathtaking, these long rolling hills and these long plains. It's very, very different from what the coast is like. Yeah, you stand there as a as a person in a landscape that's quite literally bigger than you. And I, I think that sums up what the First World War uh, was like for the guys that were there. And as we look back on it over 100 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's exactly the same. It's all wild. So Sam, thank you so much for, for talking to us this week. Uh, it's been a fascinating discussion um, because battlefields, you know, they're an essential part of what this podcast is about and they're an essential part of, of my life and I know your life as well. And here's to the day we can get back there. I can't wait for it, Paul. I'll see you over there. Yeah, look forward to it. Thanks. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. 
You can follow me on Twitter at Somcore. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.